What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. This is part of a two-episode series. It's best to listen to the episodes in order to gain the best understanding of the material. Welcome to Evidence Elevates. My name is Hallie Zalesnik, and I am the co-chair of the Moving Forward Task Force of the ANPT, I'm very excited today to be here with physical therapist, PhD, and Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association, Dr. Chad Cook. Briefly, Dr. Cook is a professor at Duke University with appointments in the Department of Orthopedics, Population Health Sciences, and the Duke Clinical Research Institute. He has 32 years experience as a physical therapist and 23 years experience in academia. Dr. Cook has 325 peer-reviewed publications and is an NIH researcher that is currently part of $10 million in U.S. funding. Some of Dr. Cook's earliest scholarship involved research on research, which examined research bias, what research actually tells us, and why the findings are sometimes not incorporated into clinical practice. And personally, to make sure that we, or personally I, am not intimidated by that background, Dr. Cook allowed us to share a few snips of his personal life. He's been married to his wife, Amy, also a PT for 32 years. He has three boys, two cats. He's an avid cyclist and a whiskey drinker. We invited Dr. Cook to speak with us today about evidence-based practice, particularly about some of the difficulties clinicians experience in practicing as evidence-based clinicians and hopefully hear a little bit about the potential future and different solutions or ways that we can move forward. So welcome, Dr. Cook. Well, thank you. And please call me Chad. And I want to correct one thing about that introduction. The cats belong to the family. They're not mine. So <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good clarification to make. You never know where this podcast is going to get heard. And so I really do want to talk to you more about whiskey. Um, maybe we can talk more about that later. But before we dive in here, I was hoping you could briefly summarize your areas of clinical and research expertise and interests for us. I'm happy to. As you mentioned in the intro, initially, I was interested in research on research. In other words, how does research work? How do we implement it in practice? What is believable? And I still dabble in that, but that's not really my primary focus right now. My funding is primarily in orthopedics. I do a lot of outcomes research. I have probably somewhere around 80 publications on diagnostic accuracy and another 60 or so on manual therapy. So I, I like to dabble in different areas, but um, overall it's orthopedics and, and I will share your intimidation. I'm speaking to a neuro person and I am not a very well neurotrained clinician. Well, I think that we're gonna end up having a lot in common, believe it or not. And before you and I had talked, I had shared with you the ANPT's moving forward position paper to kind of set the stage as to what the ANPT is trying to work towards in practice for neurologic physical therapy. Essentially, we're working to de-implement practices and interventions that we have limited or no evidence with and to work as a profession to try to move forward. 
to embrace change, to change the way we practice. And I'm really wondering what your thoughts or your experiences are with this idea about finding, selecting, and implementing the best evidence, even if it's orthopedic related. I think it is a huge challenge. Uh, so I I, I, uh, I recognize how daunting that is for you and your group to do that. Um, and I hope we get a chance to delve deeply into de-implementation because I, I find it to be a fascinating subject. But the idea of incorporating or changing practice, I think, is um, it's, it's not an easy task. I think we've changed clinical practice quite a bit as a profession. Um, I teach a class. It's a it's called PT 636. I've taught it for 23 years. And one of the things we always do is we look at the billable codes in each class to see how, you know, what are the most commonly billed interventions? And it's remarkably changed over the last 20 years. We're, we're much more active in what we do than a lot of the passive things that we used to do. I think we still need to change. I think evidence is changing and we're an allied health profession. So Evidence should change. We're not math, right? It's not going to be the same thing each year. There's going to be something different. It should be a living document. And um, but staying up with that as a clinician, I think that's the real, real challenge. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And you know, it's I think it's hopeful to hear what you just said that we have looked back and we have found evidence of us evolving and changing with the practice. So sometimes we talk about all of the challenges and all of the barriers, and we forget to mention that we have come a long way. And while there still may be work to do, or as you mentioned, it's a continual process that, you know, there's hope, we are moving along. So you talked a little bit about just the difficulties with evidence. And I thought we could talk for a few minutes about um, perhaps the evidence or the body of literature itself can be challenging for us to deal with, um, particularly um, as it relates to interventions. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on some of the difficulties we have with reading evidence, finding evidence, and perhaps the body of evidence itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a soft spot for clinicians. So if I come across as a an individual that uh, is giving excuses on why it's difficult to stay on task, it's primarily because I'm a pragmatist. Um, I, I This morning, I actually looked at your literature. I'm not familiar with neural literature, but I went in PubMed and I looked at how many stroke papers were published each year. And last year, there were 34,000 papers published on stroke. And on this year alone, in 22, there are 22,000. Now, nobody can read that many papers and stay up and, and consolidate that information. So even if you think of just PT and stroke. This year, there have been 1,600 papers on that. And that, that's reading five papers a day, every day, as a clinician, just to stay in touch with the literature. So for me, the sheer wealth of information that's out there really makes it difficult for a clinician whose responsibility is to treat patients eight to 10 hours a day to stay in tune with the evidence. So if I if somebody says, well, they don't know the evidence, I don't doubt that. I, I don't think very many people know the full breadth of evidence. I think another part of it is, is that research is very challenging. There are different designs. There are different environments. There are different levels of clinical applicability of that research. And understanding what is transferable to a person's clinical practice, that's not something we train in PT school. So I think those are certainly considerations that need to be sorted. 
Yeah, you bring up a really good point about what becomes transferable and how do you even sift through the evidence to figure out what to read of those, you know, tens and thousands of papers that are coming out every year. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the labels that we give papers in terms of the levels of evidence. So an RCT versus a systematic review versus a meta-analysis and, you know, what those labels mean and why we may need to be cautious in taking them at face value? Well, that's very insightful of you. We all know there's an evidence-based pyramid, right? And the systematic reviews are at the top and then the RCT, and then a series of other designs such as cohort designs, uh, case control designs, et cetera, which have quote, lower levels of evidence. What a lot of individuals don't understand is to, in order to answer a selected research question, you have to use a particular research design. So. For example, diagnostic accuracy, you can't answer that question with an RCT. That is only answered through a case control design. Does that mean that it's substandard evidence because it's a case control design? Well, no, that's the only type of evidence that's available. So we've kind of moved away from the evidence-based pyramid and instead we look at an evidence pie. There is information that is super useful in other types of designs that should be assimilated into clinical practice. We shouldn't only look at RCTs. We shouldn't only look at systematic reviews. I remember talking to Pam Duncan, who is, I think, one of the stalwart re researchers in neuro. And this was the time where they um, studied um, treadmill-supported, uh, weight-supported weight treadmill walking for stroke. And a systematic review had suggested that it was quite beneficial. I think there were five studies, small studies that were performed in the systematic review and they said it's useful. And then Pam Duncan's study came out, New England Journal of Medicine, and they found basically it was equitable to a home exercise program. This is a situation which a lower level of evidence in a study that was performed better than the previous studies of higher level of evidence actually trumped that. So I think we need to be cautious about just taking studies at face value and, and really look at the, the credibility of that work too. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, particularly, especially with the example that you gave, because I think a lot of clinicians in practice were very confused about um, the evidence at, around that time. So clinicians who were, you know, well-intentioned and trying to stay up with the literature um, didn't really know what to make of that for that specific reason. Is body weight support training beneficial? Is it not beneficial? Um, and I think what we're starting to find now, you know, even 10 years past that, is that perhaps it's not the body weight support training device that is the benefit, but perhaps the conditions are surrounding the practice. So the level of cardiovascular intensity that someone is achieving, or the amount of repetition, or the um, the specificity of the task, moving off the treadmill over ground and moving into different directions. So I think that's a really great example. And again, in a short period of time, how the evidence has evolved again past that. Yep. Um, so that's a really good point. Which brings up another really great point. As you're trying to keep on top of the evidence from day to day, moment to moment or year to year, Oftentimes, I think what we find is that it's the easiest, if you're trying to absorb the most amount of information, it might be the easiest to try to skim around in the, in the abstracts, maybe skim some full articles, um, and just try to get everything you can possibly get to inform yourself. And in fact, in a 
recent survey that we ran, it's not published, we're really just starting to look at the results. We found that the majority of clinicians who responded said that they interact with the evidence by reading the abstracts or perhaps skimming the articles, which I think, as you mentioned before, is a completely reasonable way to try to address it. And are there pitfalls in that? You know, is it something about the breadth or the depth of what you read that could impact how you take on the information that's being presented? Yes, there is, uh, 100%. Uh, in fact, just to give context, when you write a paper, the last thing written is the abstract. And that abstract is your window to the world. So you've completed your paper, you've had this gigantic study, and then you have 200 words to tell your story in the paper. And often what people will do is they'll put a little spin on their abstract. And then hopefully everybody's familiar with spin. Um, I think we are, if we watch any form of news, right? CNN, they're gonna tell you what they wanna tell you and they'll ignore anything that's anti-left. Um, Fox, they're gonna tell you what they wanna tell you. They'll ignore everything that's anti-right. That's a form of spin. You see this in research all the time too. In fact, the majority of musculoskeletal papers have an abstract that incorporates spin in which they either amplify the results or focus only on areas that are um, supportive of the paper. I took the liberty of looking at spin and stroke. Um, I'm so proud of myself for giving a neuro example before. I thought, well, I'll give another one. And there's actually a paper published this year by Tosetta and colleagues, and they found that over 50% of papers that are published on stroke also incorporate spin in the abstract. So this is not something that is unique to a given practice area. It happens in all of research. So just reading the abstract, not going to tell you the whole story. So knowing that, what is the best way for a clinician to try to approach the evidence when they really truly want to be more evidence-based? Well, again, I think it's very difficult. Um, I am a believer in clinical practice guidelines. Now, clinical practice guidelines are not perfect. They often look like the people who wrote them. And in fact, the authors highly influence what gets into a clinical practice guideline. And if you got to think those authors are taking 30,000 papers and trying to put it into a manageable format. So you can see why they're doing it. But clinical practice guidelines do a decent job of paring down the information into usable chunks and then qualifying the level of evidence in that particular area too. So I'm a, I'm a believer in those. I would actually recommend that. And I especially would support a multidisciplinary clinical practice guideline. And a, and a lot of folks don't know there's a difference, right? There's monodisciplinary. This is something that maybe was endorsed by this, a section or an academy, and it's very PT-centric and it goes into grave detail about PT stuff, but most of that stuff wouldn't make the cut in a multidisciplinary guideline. If, if I read a multidisciplinary guideline in which nurses and physicians and PAs and others are saying, oh yeah, you should absolutely get PT for this and here's the particular approach, then I would believe that. that. That is something that I think is transferable to practice. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept because sometimes, particularly I think in the neurologic conditions, you have no choice but to interact in that interprofessional realm. Um, and it is interesting because some of the CPGs out there 
are, I'm not going to say conflicting, but they have different focuses, right? So certainly as a PT practicing in neurologic rehab, I have a very specific interest in what is going to help my patients to walk better because that's what they tell me they want time and time again for 20 years. I want to walk better. I want to be able to walk again. And, you know, not surprisingly, some of the interprofessional CPGs don't always address it in the grave detail that I feel like it would need to be addressed to really change my practice. Um, so any thoughts on that? Well, you're right. There is conflict. There are conflicting CPGs. Uh, in, in our profession, in, um, for low back pain guidelines, the clinical practice guidelines are wildly different. Uh, we published a paper in 2018, and we found about 30% of recommendations were not consistent across the board. And if you look at it, they're often reflective of the people who wrote them. The, the variations are very much based on the individuals who have um, a, a, a stake in the game. Uh, as my friends say, follow the money. Um, those folks who have, if they're, if this particular thing is endorsed, then they're going to do very well. So there, there are some variations with that. Um, I would, there are ways to evaluate those clinical practice guidelines, like the agree tool. So there, there are ways to self-evaluate those to see which ones are stronger. That's a good point. And perhaps we can put some of that information in our show notes as well, links to the agree tool. Um, that's a tool I'll be looking up and using, I think, as I read CPGs in the future after this, for sure. Um, you know, you, you talked about abstract spin, you've talked about CPGs being a little bit biased towards the authors. I want to talk a little bit about something that you have published in February of 2022, an article that looked at believability of evidence. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what that concept of believability is. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so the way that we get information now is so different than in the past. Uh, social media plays a big role. We know that continuing education plays a big role, and that that is like a free-range chickens, right? You never know what is being tossed out there for that. Even evidence itself that's coming out is conflicted either through spin or through authors who have a vested interest or you know, a financial consideration to the outcome. And there's even something called predatory journals, and I'm not sure if you've heard of these, but these are fake journals that charge individuals and then don't do a, an actual peer review. And there are actually 11,000 of these that are out there, 11,000 uh, predatory journals. And it used to be that PubMed was a safe haven to go get your evidence, but now about 5% of PubMed is infiltrated by predatory journals. And we've even written a fake paper where we brought a person back to life in the paper by using spinal manipulation and the paper was absolute nonsense, and it was accepted by one of the predatory journals and was published. So we were concerned that clinicians, because they were just hit with all of this nonsense, that they wouldn't believe the evidence. And so we did an international survey, six different languages, reached out to, I think we ended up with 33 different countries, of about 1,100 clinicians, scored believability, and then looked at what features reflected that believability. And we found that most of the interventions, and this was musculoskeletal, were believable, but they didn't believe the information that they were hearing on social media or were reading about manual therapy. 
And they absolutely did not believe the information that they were hearing or reading about with electrical and thermal agents. And the thing that was the biggest predictor of believability was the, uh, the credibility of the researcher, which we thought was interesting. And so when you talk about the credibility of the researcher, again, with kind of this, this difficult situation of evaluating evidence, is the credibility of the researcher based on science, essentially, or is it based on reputation? I, I like this person. They're always out there a lot. I see their name a lot versus they put out very high quality evidence that's unbiased and scientifically based. You know, you ask a good question and we didn't delve into that. Um, I'm not sure if it is based on their preferences of that individual or whether it's the quality of the work the person produced. Up until about 45 seconds ago, I thought it was the quality of the research that the person produced. But it very well could be that it's a person that says the same thing that rings in my mindset. Sure. And uh, so I haven't thought of that. Yeah, sure. You know, you also mentioned continuing education under that kind of conversation of believability. And I think that continuing education is oftentimes, probably more often than not, where clinicians go to improve their practice and to increase their game when it comes to evidence-based practice. So I think it should be one of the places. It should certainly not be the only place. Um, we know that there are limitations to continuing education. And, and I know you and I are both familiar with the paper that was published by Seth Peterson recently. And then another viewpoint, which was published today in JOSPT by Seth Peterson. And they basically looked at limitations in continuing education. Indeed, more people get their information from CE courses than they do papers or you know, manuscripts or CPGs. So um, they, they are using this as their, their place of information. The challenge is, is that almost anything can get approved for a continuum education course. Uh, Stanley Paris in 2006 in his Macmillan address actually said, if you give the states the authority to approve a continuing education course for money, you're setting yourself up for a great risk of having a lot of courses that have very little credibility. And in, in their work that they published in PTJ this year, it actually finds that to be correct, that over 50% of the courses lack credibility. They're, they're not even linked to clinical practice guidelines. And, and the other thing they do is they the courses will talk a big game and say that, you know, we're going to show you the evidence-based exercised approach. An exercise is typically supported by clinical practice guidelines, but the fidelity of the exercise approach they give you is either subtherapeutic or something that isn't related to any of the clinical practice guidelines. So it's, you know, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, it, it, it's really difficult, I think, to have a good clinical education experience. Yeah. I would agree with that too. In my role outside of the ANPT where I work, I think I had shared with you previously that I oversee our continuing education programming development, as well as kind of a review of, of courses that people are going to. And it's a challenging, it's a challenging part of my job. 
um, particularly when my area of expertise, of course, is in the neurologic spectrum. And while I have a team of individuals um, trying to parse through the Con Ed courses in the other areas in acute care and orthopedics and women's health, um, it's very challenging, especially if you are committed and dedicated to trying to ensure that people are choosing wisely with their continuing education courses. I bet you're not very popular. Um, <laughs> that is, you, you have to be the individual that basically says, no, this lacks credibility. And I do think that's extremely, that, that's an extremely difficult thing to do. And and there's there aren't a lot of guidelines to guide somebody into determining, you know, how what course should I take? I, you know, when I get a lot of students that ask me, I'm thinking about taking CE courses, what do you recommend? And I, I I do believe two things. First of all, if it doesn't match your career trajectory, if that's not, if, you know, if I'm taking a course on women's health and I'm an ortho guy, the question is, why are you doing that? If it doesn't match your employer needs, I think there's a question mark related to that too. And I always ask the question is, who's teaching this? Because I do think the provider will drive the experience quite a bit. And and I, and I mentioned that, that it's free range chickens. Anybody can teach a Con Ed course. There, there's not some hurdle that they have to leap. Typically it's five references within the last five years and a person can put whatever they want together and get it approved through a state. That, that's, that's dangerous. It is, and I am sometimes not liked. That is correct. I also try to ensure that I choose courses um, from highly ranked instructors um, where I can to bring those courses in for us. But it's challenging. And I think, you know, with clinicians, I think that that's part of the challenge sometimes is where the clinicians come from, you know, how they've been developed as students, as clinicians and how their practice develops, I think also influences how they read the evidence, what evidence they look towards, or what continuing education styles that they're interested in. And I'm wondering, particularly with your experience of both academia as well as the clinical side, what you've seen in terms of how people develop as clinicians. Oh, I, I think you imprint upon their first meaningful clinical encounter. And I, that's either going to be your CI when you're a student, or maybe it's that first person that you end up that really cares about your practicing, that first clinician that gives you feedback and, and mentors you. You end up practicing very closely to their patterns. I mean, I can remember mine. Mine was Michelle Cady, and she was the first one that would pull me aside and say, don't do that. Or this is the right way to do it, or consider this, I overheard, and it meant a lot. And I practiced like Michelle Cady until I went through Maitland uh, manual therapy training. And then I practiced like a Maitland manual therapist. No matter who the patient was, that was my approach. I had my guide wire here. I was following that approach, and I became a very um, structured one-way clinician. And so I, I do think it matters. I, I really think what you're, I see it all the time with the surgeons too, because I'm in the department of orthopedics. When the fellows come through, they do the same surgeries as their mentors. They end up having a similar type of practice as their mentors. I, I really do think those things matter. 
Yeah. And it's funny now that you bring that kind of the forefront of my brain, I can name the people that I met even as, as clinical instructors, but I also think early on in my career um, that I worked with and I met and, and I think I do practice like them in hindsight, looking back even now, 20, 22 years later. You talked a little bit about how you practiced like Michelle Cady, and then you were introduced to Maitland, and then you kind of changed directions and practiced as a Maitland practitioner. And that was your one kind of structured approach. And I think from our discussions in the task force, as well as a previous task force and national campaign for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, where they were focused on implementing intensity into practice, a lot of what we hear nationally from colleagues through conferences and discussions and interactions is that people really have this sense of, I, I am this type of practitioner. This is the philosophical approach that I use with my patients. And it's funny that you just mentioned that you kind of have felt that way. And I'm wondering if you think, is that a good thing or a bad thing to really identify as this style of practitioner? and how that might impact someone's ability to move forward with evidence. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, divorcing myself from some of the strong principles of Maitland was an extremely difficult thing to do. And, and I'm aware of the literature that, that talks about this philosophical attachment to a particular treatment or to a particular treatment approach. In fact, it's actually been studied. There, there's an fMRI study that actually looked at areas of the brain when they would ask questions about politics and spirituality and a person's preference of a particular treatment intervention. And it's the same spots. And when any time they would say something against it, the same area would light up. So th there's a spiritual attachment to these interventions. I remember if you don't mind me giving you an anecdotal situation, in the late 90s, I put together this sacroiliac joint dysfunction course and spent months gathering the evidence and critiquing the philosophies that were out there, the prevailing philosophies, which were very osteopathic in nature, and really the pseudoscience. And here I was putting all this together that really deconstructed a philosophy and basically said it was hogwash. Right. And I went and taught my course in New York, expecting there were to be a parade afterwards and everything. I barely made it out alive. And <laughs> basically, I offended everyone. Now, I didn't offend them because I said anything that wasn't true. I, I had a lot of evidence to support what I said. I offended them because of their belief system and their dedication to that philosophy. That's that's a really difficult thing to detach yourself from. That's a behavioral change. And changing behaviors, as you know, is not an, not an easy thing to do. No. And I'm wondering if you've, if you've read the book by Adam Grant, Think Again. Have you heard of the book or read this book? I've heard it. I have not read it. Oh, I'm going to send it to you as a thank you for doing this podcast. Because it speaks to exactly that in the Moving Forward Task Force Um we all have read it and we've all really tried to take into consideration the what we learned from it and essentially how we approach a conversation with somebody who has a strong held belief. 
So rather than being a preacher or a prosecutor or a politician about what the right way is to do things, really trying to approach these difficult conversations as a scientist and trying to stick to the evidence and really talking with people, okay, so you strongly believe in this philosophy or using Maitland, what evidence would change your mind, Chad? You know, what would change your mind at that time? What would you have had to been told? So I think that's interesting. Actually, PT Pipecast, I do believe, has a little book club, and they mentioned on their Twitter feed recently that they were reading Think Again. So I like to hope that this is getting out into the world of PT, because I think that just bringing things to the forefront of our mind sometimes, it, it lives in the subconscious, I think. Having that emotional attachment, like you said, lives in the subconscious, but being aware of it in the forefront of your mind, I think sometimes is enough to start to open your mind to take in new information and be a little bit more open to hearing what that new information may be or what it might mean. Yeah, well said, by the way. Thank yeah, you. Totally I, um, I think it's great, you know, that fMRI study you mentioned, I feel like in a way it kind of takes the emotion out of being feeling frustrated about practice not changing. You know, there is a neuroanatomic, a neurophysiologic situation happening in someone's brain when they are strongly advocating for these techniques that we should, you know, we believe should be divorced at this point. So I think that's really helpful to hear. We're going to pause here for today, but we still have much more to talk about with Chad Cook. So please be sure to join us next time as we continue the conversation. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.